Welcome to the Amber Mac Show. I'm Amber Mac. Today's episode is all about artificial intelligence, why we should care about how it works, and how it will change work. We also dive into who is responsible for designing our AI future and what we need to do to ensure that humanity remains a priority. The Amber Mac Show is powered by TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home so you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. Today's guest is Dr. Ruman Chowdhury, CEO and founder of Parity, an enterprise algorithmic audit platform company. She formerly served as global lead for responsible AI at Accenture Applied Intelligence. Here's our conversation about the risks of artificial intelligence and how this technology could lead to further inequality. At an event for the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, you were tackling this question, is artificial intelligence the most dangerous global threat to human rights or is it a powerful force for good? Well, Amber, it's a bit of both. As both a AI practitioner and data scientist for many years, as well as somebody ingrained in the field of responsible and ethical AI development, what I say is that what's paramount is human agency, not just the rights of the people who are subject to AI systems, but also the responsibilities of the individuals who are creating these systems. Let's talk a little bit about that responsibility in, in terms of the people who are creating these systems. And I'm thinking about the technology and business leaders of today. And I'm sorry that I don't have more faith, perhaps, in them to create systems that think about having humans at the center of the experience. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how we do better in the future when it comes to ensuring that humanity is at the core of everything we do with artificial intelligence? You've literally touched on the the thesis of my entire talk, which is essentially about this notion of human centricity and that narrative that exists within AI systems today. And, you know, whether you call it human centricity, human in the loop, everyone is using a term like that. And yet nobody has solved that problem. And I think human rights framing um, and in particular, the Montreal Declaration of Human Rights has is a, a really wonderful resource to think about how to start implementing human-centric AI or human-focused AI. I think a rights-based discussion is really what's critical here because these things are not optional for creating human flourishing with AI systems. They're mandatory. I thought it was really interesting to see a video that uh, Pope Francis released recently where he said in the video that he is worried about AI-driven inequality, that the potential of AI and robots is immense to better humanity. But of course, there could be many problems on the horizon in terms of inequality. So how do you address that issue? And he is spot on. Um, There are already plenty of examples of artificial intelligence being used that in a way that cements already existing inequalities in our society. Um, one part of my talk focused on the use of AI in health. And while there is a lot of issues that AI can solve, I focus on a couple of very specific examples about how they uh, reinforce entrenched biases. So number one, um, with COVID reallocation models or funding allocation models um, and how they work in assuming that 
um, funding should be equitable based on prior expenses, which does not reflect at need communities versus more affluent communities. Even more specifically, there are algorithms that were being used in healthcare to do, for example, patient prioritization that would favor less sick white patients over more sick black patients. And the problems are worse when you add gender to that mix. In general, women are less believed by doctors and black women even less so. So the Pope is absolutely spot on that there is a fear of cementing these inequalities. But I will add that it's good that people are talking about it and we're working on fixing these things. One of the fears that I've always had when we talk about the potential of AI is that people will have become so paranoid about how their data is being used that they will just say to no to everything. And that is, of course, because of years of potential social media abuse as far as their personal information. And I could go on and on forever. How do we get to the point where there is better understanding of how uh, individuals' data could, in fact, help in terms of artificial intelligence and the future of humanity? Well, you know, I think that a lot of people's fears are well-founded. We don't necessarily have adequate rights and protections uh, and agency over our own data and how it is being used. You know, we're seeing issues coming up in Europe because in uh, in the European Union and in the UK, they have more rights usually than folks in Canada or the US do. Um, so it is a not unfounded fear. And the way to resolve that fear is to give us our rights with regards to that data. Um, but yes, it would be extremely helpful if some of that data could be utilized. So for example, right now, there are ongoing patient trials for COVID vaccines. And it's very interesting. And while this isn't necessarily about digital data, it's about health data, which one can say will be digitized, of course. It's very interesting to see the public debate on whether or not somebody would volunteer for vaccine trials, who it is that's volunteering, but also what are the biases that can arise. And here's again why a rights-based based framework makes a lot of sense because if privacy is a privilege, if I can purchase privacy, if it's optional, then we will very clearly see the exploitation of lower income and more vulnerable communities. And we will see that, you know, artificial intelligence advancement will continue to serve the, the most affluent and the most privileged in society at the expense of the most vulnerable. I don't want to beat up on any one tech leader, but I'm reminded of something that Elon Musk said uh, a couple of years ago, where he said, when we talk about the future, we'll be lucky if these robots enslave us as pets. And I guess I worry a little bit that when we start to use that narrative, again, I think people lose faith in what can be done. So what would you say to people who are listening right now, as far as why they should be hopeful about the potential of AI, knowing that, again, and there are lots of different frameworks that need to be put in place. Absolutely. And here's where the responsibility of the developer comes in. And you've also touched on another key part of my talk where, you know, it's interesting to dive into how AI is referenced and how it is spoken about and how it's unlike any other technology. And we've had instances of literally magical seeming technology um, being created, but we've never seen it in a way that we anthropomorphize it. So if Elon Musk is incorrect that AI is just going to magically start to enslave us, something like that would only happen if there is a human designing AI to do that, right? So there are, you know, what is um, encouraging is that there are plenty of people fighting the good fight. So um, 
For example, there's a group called Stop Killer Robots, which is a dramatic name, but what they advocate for is, you know, against the use of autonomous weapons in warfare, right? So that's a perfect example. Uh, there are groups fighting for, you know, advocacy for students um, who's in, who are increasingly being watched and monitored by education technologies, both blue collar and white collar workers who are being surveilled at home. And a lot of this, when we think about it, is, you know, really scary in that slippery slope sense where we get slowly used to more and more invasive technology, not just outside in public, but also inside our homes. So the other thing that we think about with artificial intelligence is how we're blurring the lines of what's private and public. So there are things that people should be hopeful about, that there are people pushing for the rights, that there are actually advances that are coming from artificial intelligence. And what are the actions people can take? Well, the easiest one you can take is simply to not allow this technology in your home. And I agree, it is increasingly difficult to do that. I mean, we're on a Zoom call right now, probably, a, you know, 90% of your listeners have been on Zoom at some point. Well, earlier this week, it was revealed that Zoom had actually lied about having end-to-end uh, -end encryption and protection for Zoom calls. So, you know, one thing I will say that regular people can do is, number one, be very careful of what technology you bring in your home. Number two, be aware and advocate with your public officials to really push for rights, transparency, accountability. I mean, I will say that Canada is certainly one of the gold standards in um, the government's uh, adoption of an algorithmic impact assessment. We're seeing more and more of that kind of conversation. So what there is to be hopeful about is that policymakers are increasingly aware. Uh, I will say designers and developers are actually increasingly aware and there's more of a narrative around ethics. I think you bring up a good point in terms of uh, understanding as well how some of this technology works, because I think, uh, again, people are unfortunately fed a lot of misinformation and disinformation about uh, how AI can work, whether it's in the home or in healthcare or beyond. What advice do you have to people like me who essentially are in the world as explainers of emerging technologies like this to do a better job to help to equip people with the information and the facts that they need? That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing is for people to realize that it is simply a technology. It is not magic. So, you know, in, in, intuitively we know this, but literally nothing can quote unquote predict with 100% accuracy, what will happen in the future. So when we say things like, we're making AI to predict crime or to predict X, it's actually a statistical probabilistic output. And why I make that distinction is because as a statistician, I understand these things as, okay, well, it's making a prediction of what might happen, but then there is an error term, and within that error lives the bias. So I think the first thing is simply understanding it as a technology. Uh, and not as some sort of magical device. And there is a lot of fast and loose language that we use, right? So the concept of a black box algorithm as if it's indecipherable and inscrutable is actually not really true. It's just incredibly complicated. I suppose if you sat down for long enough, you could mathematically determine what's happening. It's not magical, magically making decisions. Um, I think also in how we use our language around AI systems, how we use our imagery around AI systems, um, there's a whole field of study of really amazing people, including folks like, like science fiction authors, who talk about um, how, we, how we use fiction and our images to illustrate artificial intelligence um, and how that impacts how the public thinks about it. 
For example, when I first started in this field, everyone used to use images of Terminator and Hal, right? So what does that put in our heads? It puts us put in our heads this Elon Musk idea that, oh, we're going to get this magical AI. And if you like follow the Terminator that literally drops out of the sky and is there to enslave us or harm us or kill us, that is far, far removed from what AI is today. And what it is today are a series of algorithms that make decisions that are well within the realm of human control. So one last question for you, and perhaps this is the biggest topic that is top of mind for a lot of people. When we talk about the future of work and the impact of artificial intelligence, I think we've seen an acceleration right now during COVID-19 that perhaps has people nervous about their jobs. What do you see happening right now when it comes to the future of work and automation? Well, there are multiple narratives to have about this. So some are hopeful, some are less hopeful, and some are thoughtful, I would say. Um, on the hopeful end, I think it is worth noting how much technology has enabled us to retain our jobs during a pandemic. A lot of us who were lucky to have uh, desk-based jobs simply moved these things home. Um, you know, it's not without expense, it's not without difficulty, um, but at least most of us can still carry on a semblance of our day to day. So that's definitely something to be happy about with technology. Um, you know, also we're relying very heavily on app based services, which unfortunately create this class based dynamic of the people being exposed to COVID are the ones doing the delivery for us. Um, and we get to insulate ourselves. But then the second part to think about that's worrisome is the rise of workplace surveillance. So this is for both blue collar workers and white collar workers. This has been happening at factories and warehouses for, for actually years at this point. Um, people who stock boxes or stock shelves wearing wearables that map how, how productive they are, this being fed into an algorithm that can fire somebody if they're not moving fast enough, leading to things like um, you know, warehouse workers for Amazon, et cetera, doing very risky things and painful things. For example, not taking bathroom breaks um, and instead peeing in bottles, um, you know, suffering from physical injuries, chronic injuries, but still having to keep up the pace. That's really worrisome. On the other end, with those of us who work desk jobs, the rise of surveillance tech within all of the technology that we're using. So there's increasingly boss AI, which essentially will do things like take um, screenshots of your desktop while you're working to ensure you're working, um, monitor emails, monitor communications, and literally just do the, the, the digital equivalent of like popping your head over someone's partition or opening a door to see what you're doing. I do want to mention that this sort of surveillance has existed in the gig worker economy for quite some time. People are just talking about it more because it's now influencing high income white collar jobs. What's interesting and worrisome and thought provoking is that traditionally workplace surveillance law does not protect the employees. But I'm really interested to see what it means when work is home and home is work. So back to this blurring of lines between what is public and what is private for all of us. So I said that was the last question, but I, just quickly, I want to ask you one more thing, because it just made me think that in terms of skills to survive this future, what would be the number one skill that you would tell people they should be thinking about knowing that there is a shakeup happening right now when it comes to the future of work? Yeah. And um, 
I will say I will be I will reference the World Economic Forum. They actually do publish, I believe, annually, like a top 10 skills to be enabled for an AI future. Um, and what's very interesting is we're starting to see things like programming falling lower and lower on that list as we get more um, systems automation. But increasingly, it's uh, what people often call soft skills, which is a term I despise, um, but interpersonal skills. So uh, one I would say is flexibility. Um, how well do you adjust to things? Two is good communication. Again, as our communication is digitized, how do you, how do you, you know, for example, bring on a new employee who's a half a world away, but then make them feel part of a team and at home? These kinds of skills will be increasingly important, especially since there doesn't really seem to be an end in sight, at least immediately for COVID. But also, I would say, hopefully, even after COVID, we will take and adopt some of these at-home uh, abilities and technologies in a way that will help people um, who maybe can't have a really long commute or have other responsibilities at home. And now for today's essay. If you were watching Jeopardy! in February of 2011, you may remember that Watson, IBM's question-answering system, reigned supreme in a showdown with Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter, two of the best players in the history of the popular quiz show. According to the New York Times, Watson showed itself to be imperfect, but researchers at IBM and other companies are already developing uses for Watson's technologies that could have a significant impact on the way doctors practice and consumers buy products. That was almost 10 years ago. Today, AI is generations more capable. As we move into the future, it is primed to be a real game changer in a variety of industries and aspects of society. However, not everyone is on board. Some worry that AI will be a net negative for workers, and others are concerned that certain advancements in AI will in fact destroy us all. At South by Southwest in 2010, Elon Musk said the following, Mark my words, AI is much more dangerous than nukes. It scares the hell out of me. It's capable of vastly more than almost anyone knows. There needs to be a public regulatory body that has insight and then oversight to confirm that everyone is developing AI safely and in a way that is symbiotic with humanity. Well, the regulatory comment is a fair point, and work is being done on this front. However, whether we like it or not, developments in AI are already affecting our lives, and they're accelerating during COVID-19. In other words, artificial intelligence isn't so much about the past, and it's not only about the future. AI is about right now. And perhaps more importantly, artificial intelligence isn't only about machines and computers. It's also about you and me. One of the most prominent conversations surrounding artificial intelligence revolves around how AI is shaping work. While it may be natural to assume that AI will replace workers, for many, it will also change the nature of work, and through a series of transitions and delocations, how people will interface with their work. Consider this example. By using machine learning and natural language processing, a chatbot can not only solve increasingly complex customer queries, they can also respond to them in a natural way. You can look at the scenario and decide that the chatbot put a customer service representative out of work. 
You can also decide that the customer service representative can now handle more difficult problems because the mundane tasks performed by artificial intelligence have in fact cleaned up his workflow and freed up more time. Now imagine that the CSR is a doctor and AI helped her more quickly identify a disease by doing something in a fraction of the time it would take a human. Now the doctor is freed up to go about treating her patient and even offering a higher standard of care. Of course, all of this only works if humans see and seize these changes and develop the skills necessary to perform these new roles. Let's face it, human-machine partnerships can increase efficiency and even productivity. Productivity growth is a key driver of economic growth. And economic growth leads to new industries and new jobs. People, in turn, will need to occupy these jobs. Successful human-machine partnerships will invariably become more and more common the further along we advance. And workers will have to transition. This means retraining and re-education, which in turn means that governments will have to create policy to ensure that people can afford the requisite training and education, and that those who get displaced by technology can afford to participate in the economy. The changing nature of work for reasons including but not limited to those kinds of advancements, AI and otherwise, will force various shifts upon people, just as the coronavirus pandemic acquainted millions of people with remote work. As industries change, adjust, and adapt, people will experience education and training differently. Over time, the various transitions and delocations people experience in their individual lives and relationships to work will lessen. Over time, what was novel will become normal. Technology has always affected how we work and has always caused rifts and shifts in the workforce. By its very nature, technology is meant to increase or augment human abilities and to make things easier and more efficient. In this regard, AI is no different than any other tool created in the name of industry and progress. There are things it can do well, and there are things it can do capably, and there are things that it still can't do at all. To revisit an earlier point, the ideas we have and the decisions we make today will mediate how AI intersects with life, culture, society, industry, and our economy going forward. And to make a larger point, in our second episode of The Amber Max Show, we talked about the implications of social media algorithms and explored how those algorithms fundamentally changed the nature of reality for billions of people, with some truly terrifying results. Now, I'm not building the future, but I do report on it. And it occurs to me that if the people and organizations navigating these issues don't take into consideration the short and long-term implications of AI, as well as the applications of it, we're going to find ourselves in a similar situation to the one we currently find ourselves in with respect to social media and the social internet, a place built on the consequences of a move fast and break things mindset. Put another way, an ounce of prevention equals a pound of cure. If Elon Musk and the like are correct, and AI will be the destroyer of everything, it will only be because we moved too fast and broke too many things along the way. If you're not close to this world, the question you might ask yourself is, well, what should I do? The easiest answer is to start to understand how AI is already playing a role in your life. 
whether it's how AI is powering your smart speaker at home or even deciding on your next bank loan. From there, start to dig into how these decisions are made and even demand transparency behind the process. After all, this technology has the power to change the world and help people everywhere. And it can do that, but only if we want it to and guide it along the way. The Amber Mac Show is made possible thanks to our partners at TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home, so you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. As one example, a TP-Link range extender can further your Wi-Fi signal. This means you can add a product like this to your existing network if there is a room or space where you want to extend coverage. For more information, visit TP-Link online. The Amber Mac Show is produced by Amber Mac Media. If you enjoy this series, please let us know and rate us in your favorite podcast store.